Sometimes it's merely inconvenient to forget. Where did I put the car keys? Right? But sometimes it's dangerous to forget. It's dangerous to forget that you're allergic to shellfish when ordering at the restaurant. Yeah. It's dangerous to forget that flammable and inflammable are synonyms. It's dangerous to forget your wife's birthday. Forgetting has consequences, and sometimes they're severe. I find myself bewildered by Israel's consistent and persistent propensity to forget. Given their experiences with God, given the frequency with which they would have been participants in God's great working in the nation and through the nation, how could Israel, God's covenant people, God's chosen people, having experienced the oppression of 400 years of Egyptian bondage and the miracle of God's liberating power over the Pharaoh and the great military might that he represented, how could Israel, having been freed from bondage, led by the pillar of cloud through the day, pillar of fire by night, how could this people, who had experienced daily provision of manna, literally bread from heaven, water from a rock, parting of the Red Sea, and the list goes on, how could this people forget what it meant to be God's people? Now, before we get all high and mighty, thinking that they're somehow inferior to us, coming to the conclusion that, well, if we had experienced all that Israel had experienced, that we wouldn't forget so easily, I'll propose this as an alternative. We are no less inclined to forget what it means to be God's people. Because this propensity comes with being human. We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave. We are prone to forget. It's just a part of fallen humanity to forget what it means to be God's people. The story of God's people begins in Genesis with the calling of Abraham. He's given a covenant promise which is passed on to Isaac, which is passed on to Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons. One was Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. Joseph rises to prominence in Egypt. A seven-year famine causes Jacob to relocate his family to Egypt, where Joseph supplies their needs. Over the years, Jacob's family, Israel, grows to be many, many thousands of people. Leadership in Egypt changes. Israel is seen as an internal threat to the nation's security. So, Israel is enslaved. 400 years of bondage comes to an end when Moses, an Israelite who was raised as Pharaoh's grandson, is called by God from out of a burning bush to represent God before Pharaoh. Moses was placed for a purpose. 
Justin did such a nice job last week of presenting that to us. Moses leads the nation out of Egyptian bondage and to God's covenant land of promise. The book of Deuteronomy is the fifth and final book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which are authored by Moses. Genesis, the story begins. Exodus, the people leave Egyptian bondage. Leviticus, Numbers, gets us to Deuteronomy. It's a record of the Lord's instruction to his people through his prophet Moses. It comes as the nation of Israel is preparing for a second time to enter the promised land. The first time did not go so well. They'll go in, but Moses won't. Also not entering the promised land are the parents and the grandparents of the generation that we'll look at today. Those who had died in the wilderness wandering as a consequence of their disobedience and disbelief, having questioned whether God would be faithful to his promises, responding with paralyzing fear rather than faith when they stood at the borders of the land of promise the first time 40 years prior. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy follows Moses' second giving of the law, God's Ten Commandments, first given at Mount Sinai, now repeated to the children and grandchildren of those who died in the desert. A generation who stand at the boundary of the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of promise, God's covenant land, promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. What we're witnessing here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is an intentional, God-directed effort to disciple a generation. We'll notice that these people are an example of something that continues to today, millennia later. It's a pattern that's lived out by God's people over and over and over again. A generation who rejects the faith of their parents and grandparents. Now, at one time, you could count on a high percentage of the next generation returning to the faith of their fathers. But fewer and fewer today are finding their way back to faith. Study after study confirms this disheartening trend. The pastors recently read a book entitled Resilient that bears this research out. There is no longer the return to faith which was once so common. No longer can we just assume that the next generation, the generation that follows us, after walking away from faith, will one day return to faith. And this should be cause for concern. The sobering reality is that many of the high school graduates who leave our homes also leave the church. They leave any significant connection to Christian community. They may still refer to themselves as Christian, not having deconstructed their faith entirely, but they are Christian in name only, largely indistinguishable from the world around them. They're surrounded by pagans, and their beliefs are largely pagan, and they live as pagans live. 
At best, some will employ a sort of syncretism to hang on to some of their Christian heritage, but incorporate a variety of pagan influences. Now, we may not think of paganism as a contemporary issue, believing that paganism is something reserved for ancient cultures. But if properly understood, I think that you'll see that paganism is alive and well today. Paganism usually refers to polytheism, worshiping more than one god. Someone could also be considered a pagan if he or she claims to have no religion at all or whose worldview is naturalistic and usually hedonistic. They tend to focus on fulfillment as found in pleasing or gratifying their senses. Paganism is also associated with witchcraft and the occult. Sexuality, usually for both pagans who are religious and irreligious pagans, can almost be sacramental. To paint with a very broad brush, you might say that pagans have these beliefs in common. First, there is no objective truth. That is to say that you can have a truth which is true for you. I can hold to something that differs with you, which could be true for me. We could hold to these differing truths without being in conflict with one another. Another element to contemporary paganism is that everyone is part of the divine, often referred to as Mother Earth or something similar. All is God and God is all. And as such, we're gods and goddesses ourselves. And finally, your, your feelings must be lived out. Being authentic to your feelings is how righteousness is defined in the mind of a pagan. Now, you may notice that there are a few things about paganism which sound pretty, pretty familiar. Although we think of it as ancient, it's actually quite contemporary. And not only is this common in our day, it was common in Apostle Paul's day. In his letters to the first century church, he referenced polytheistic worship, idolatry, worship of creation, deviant sexual religious practices, and on and on. And thousands of years before Paul, in the land of Canaan, the land into which God's chosen people were about to enter in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the inhabitants there were pagan. And no pagan culture was of greater negative influence on Israel than the Canaanites. Now, I could describe many Canaanite gods, but I'll mention those with which you are likely to be most familiar. I think you'll be familiar with Baal. Baal was a Canaanite god, the king of gods, responsible for rain and wind and clouds. Therefore, Baal was supreme over the fertility of the land. Asherah was another Canaanite god, the mother of the gods. Her symbol was an Asherah pole. Her worship included sacred prostitution. Now, the fertility aspect of the Canaanite gods would have been powerfully tempting to the Israelites. This was a generation that was new to farming, 
new to planting, new to cultivating. They're going to be settling in Canaan after 40 years of nomadic living in the desert. We know that the nation would later turn in a wholesale way to pagan worship in rejection of the one true God, Yahweh. In an equally destructive way, we know the Israelites to have mixed elements of Baalism with the worship of Yahweh. And we find here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 a clear exhortation to God's chosen people. It comes with a great deal of passion and urgency for the generation who survived the wilderness wanderings. And you may think that if you had watched your parents and grandparents wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die there, for having rebelled against God and His command and rejected His promise. And so the task falls to you and your generation to believe the covenant promises of God and to enter the promised land. You would think that they would be attuned to the Lord and His instruction in an extraordinary way. You would think that they would have rehearsed the failures of the generations who came before and committed themselves to not repeating those mistakes you would think that they would have recalled over and over the faithfulness of God and the blessings which accompany love-motivated obedience to Him. You would think. Instead, the Lord, through the prophet Moses, knew that the people of God were prone to forget, prone to wander, prone to leave and needed reminding of why they were the people of God and how the people of God are to live. So we turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 6 to hear the impassioned words of Moses to the generation of God's people who would inhabit the land of promise. The reminder from Moses, what he did not want them to forget lest they suffer the consequences. How do God's people distinguish themselves in a pagan world? And we'll see in these five verses that God's people live for Him obediently, that God's people worship Him exclusively, and that God's people love Him comprehensively. Will you stand for the reading of God's Word? Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll begin at verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey." Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul, and with all your might. Father, we pray that you would use your word in our lives to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in order that we might be thoroughly equipped to live lives that bring you glory. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In verse 1, we, three, we see three actors. There's God, and there's Moses, and there's the people of God. And each of those three actors have a role to play. God gives the commands. The commands come from God. And the role of Moses is to teach the commands. Thank the Lord for faithful teachers. They take the message of God, present it to the people of God. And the people of God must know the commands of God in order to do them. We thank the Lord for providing us with His commands. We would not know the commands of God apart from His revealing them to us. And in that way, the commands of God are full of grace. Now that might seem counterintuitive to you. You may think of God's law as being in opposition to the grace of God. And certainly when it comes to salvation, it is by grace through faith that we're saved. But the law is grace-filled as well. Think about it for a moment. Not knowing the commands of God, we could not possibly do them. Our ignorance would inevitably result in our disobedience. Our human nature would not naturally lead us to honesty or kindness or generosity or contentedness or faithfulness to our spouses. God's commands then are grace-filled because they reveal something to us that we would not know otherwise. They reveal to us the path to human flourishing. And we would not know the path to human flourishing apart from the revelation of God through His commands. His commands teach people how to rightly order their lives, rightly order their marriages, rightly order their families. God loved so much that He gave His commands. We tend to balk when we see this, ooh, commands, statute, rules, bad. When in fact they've been given by a loving God for our blessing and flourishing, we wouldn't know them otherwise. So they are grace-filled. Do you understand why the psalmist could say, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord? God gives the commands. Moses teaches the commands. What then do the people of God do? Well, they obey the commands. And this obedience that we read about here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is going to be obedience in a place and among a people where obedience will not be without obstacle. A life lived obediently for God will be lived out in a culture contrary to the things of God, contrary to the glory of God. It will require countercultural 
living. But, but notice here in, in verse 1, God's people are not moving in to blend into their surroundings. The people are going into enemy-occupied territory. Canaan was a physical territory with physical occupiers, a spiritual territory with spiritual occupiers. God's people are not moving in to blend in. They're moving in to take over, to claim territory illegitimately occupied by the enemy of God and the people of God's enemy. Notice in verse 2 that Moses explains that the obedience of the people is an expression of their fear of the Lord. Now for God's people, the fear of the Lord is not fear of judgment or eternal separation from God. For God's people, the fear of the Lord is a reverence for God. Awe, A-W-E, awe, is another word which aptly describes the way God's people fear the Lord. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, uh, there is a character named Aslan, the king of the wood. He's a lion, a great lion, and in Lewis's allegory, he represents the Lord. Lucy is one of the children in the story. And Lucy confides in Mr. Beaver that she isn't quite sure about meeting this lion and asks, Is Aslan safe? Mr. Beaver replies, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. I think Lewis captures well the fear of the Lord in Mr. Beaver's description of the great lion. Notice here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 the conditions under which obedient is required of God's people. All the commandments, all the days of your life. Not merely the commandments which suit you, the ones you find particularly easy to obey, the days on which you experience little in the way of temptation, all the commandments, all the time. And notice, too, that the commandments were not given to burden you or discourage you. Look here at what motivates the command giver, that your days may be long. The God who is good has given him his people commands for their good. It is for the purpose of bringing them blessing. You can see the additional blessings that come with obedience in verse 3. That it may go well with you. That you may multiply greatly. You see, God knows the kind of living which will produce human flourishing. It is His desire that humanity flourish. Therefore, He has revealed to humanity by way of commands, statutes, and rules, what will bring about human flourishing. And God's people, finally, can be certain of these blessings because they are given by a God who is faithful to keep His promises. He has promised you. Verse 3. So how can the people of God distinguish themselves In a pagan world, God's people live for him 
obediently. Now, I, I hope you can see the application is pretty straightforward here. Obedience is an essential part of being God's people. This is true for us today, just as it was true for the Israelites then. A Christian who has no interest in obeying the commands of Christ could rightly be asked by the Lord, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? This obedience will be lived out in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, your schools, perhaps even in your home, where it may be countercultural to obey God. The lives of those who belong to God should stand out from the rest. Their living should be distinct from those who do not belong to God. We shouldn't blend in. So often we live with a fear of people. What will they think of me? Oh, I, I want to belong. I want to fit in. I want to be accepted. Rather than living with a fear of the Lord, I live to please God alone with my life. No matter what anyone else may think, no matter what anyone else may say, our obedience is for God's glory and our flourishing and blessing. Sometimes we get the idea that God has required obedience of us so that he can pound his chest, say, look how important I am. I make rules. They follow rules. Instead, we see here, he requires our obedience for our good because he is good. To put it another way, the good God has given commands because they are good for us. And because they are good for us, he is requiring them of us. So how can the people of God distinguish themselves in a pagan world? Well, God's people live for him obediently. God loved so that he revealed the way to human flourishing through his commands, and we respond in obedience to God's loving command. Verse 4. God's people worship him exclusively. The significance of this little section in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is considerable, despite it being just a few words. In Hebrew, this particular section is referred to as the Shema. The word Shema is the English equivalent to listen. And in the Jewish tradition, these few words were combined with a couple of other passages, one from Deuteronomy 11 and another from Numbers 15. And together they were prayed in the morning and in the evening. We might think of it as a pledge of allegiance for God's people the point of the proclamation here in verse, chap, uh, verse 4, chapter 6, may be to highlight the fact that the God of Israel is a unity, uh, kind of a nod to the triunity of God. One God, three persons. It may be that. But it's more likely that the primary purpose of the statement here in verse, chapter, in verse 4, chapter 6, is to highlight that Yahweh alone is God, and there is no other. The Lord our God 
is the Lord alone. And that makes a lot of sense in the context of what Moses is saying and the occasion on which it is being said, the nation of Israel on the verge of entering a land of polytheism, of paganism. And it is a pledge of allegiance to the one true God, which excludes all allegiances to any other God. Now, we've already noted that the land into which the Israelites are going is a culture steeped in polytheism. And Moses here clearly believed that one of the greatest threats to the future of God's people was that they would divide their allegiance between many gods rather than worshiping Yahweh exclusively. The allegiance of the nation of Israel to the one true God was to be given to the one who created them and called them out from among the nations to be his people. They were chosen by him. Here's the way Moses describes God's choosing of Israel a little later in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. So, despite there being nothing about them which was particularly attractive or noteworthy, God simply, sovereignly set his choice upon them. And God's reason for choosing the nation of Israel was ultimately for bringing the Messiah into the world. But that was not the exclusive reason that God chose them. God wanted Israel to distinguish themselves among the nations, that they would reveal him to the nations. Israel was to be a nation of priests and prophets and missionaries to the world. God's intent was for Israel to be a distinct people, a nation who pointed other nations and other peoples toward the one true God and his promised provision of a redeemer, Messiah, and Savior. And for the most part, Israel failed in that task, but God did not fail in his ultimate purpose for them. It was through Israel that the promised Messiah came into the world, a promise perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Once again, I hope that the application is plain to you, that God's people worship him exclusively. I think it would be easy for us to conclude that, well, we're not idolaters, we're not polytheists. We don't worship many gods. Our allegiance isn't divided. And it may, in fact, be true that you do not have a shrine in your home with sacred images or statues. And maybe you do. And I'm glad you're here if you do. Or maybe you don't worship the sun and the moon and the stars. Maybe you do. I'm glad you're here if you do. But even if you don't, I would venture to say, even so, that you're an idolater. And so am I. It includes all of us. Uh, John Calvin put it this way, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We tend to think 
how silly the idolatry of ancient cultures was. How silly to think that they worshipped things which they believed would bring them peace or joy or contentment and happiness. It's absurd. Until we, we examine our own idols. Imagine if the Israelites could see the idols that we trust in to provide for us what we crave. We bow down before cable news shows on big screen TVs. Or our heart's desire is for likes on social media. Or our satisfaction comes from having a certain label on the clothes that we wear. The Israelites might find our idols more ridiculous than we find their golden calf. The reason that you shall have no other gods is listed first in the Ten Commandments, maybe because displacing God is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. Tim Keller points out, we never break the other commandments without breaking the first one. Idols are things in our lives which we need to make us happy or fulfilled, or content, or whole. They could be good things, but they become ultimate things in our lives, things which we trust to fulfill us in ways which only the Lord is intended to fulfill us. How can you tell what your idols may be? Well, what do you daydream about? When you let your mind wander, what does it gravitate toward? Those things may be idols. What would you rather be doing right now instead of being with God's people, hearing God's word? What you would rather be doing may be an idol. What do you spend your disposable income on? Beyond your obligations, On what do you spend your money? That may be an idol. What person do you most want to please? Is there a peer group that you're part of or a romantic interest you have which actually leads you away from God? Those relationships may be idols. What are you most passionate about? What could you talk about for hours? What determines whether your day is a good day or a bad day? These things could be idols. What's your greatest fear? What do you worry about? What makes you most anxious? What do you fear losing more than anything else? These things may be idols. Consider whether you put anything in the place which only God is intended to occupy in your life. Are there things in your life upon which you depend? Things that you need to give you peace or joy or contentment or happiness other than the Lord? If I only had that, 
then I would be fulfilled. These may be idols. And like the Israelites, there may be bitter consequences for our idolatry. We may sacrifice God's blessing and our own flourishing if we trust these things to give us what we should only trust the Lord with. How can the people of God distinguish themselves in a pagan world? Well, God's people live for him obediently. God loves so that he revealed the way to human flourishing through his commands, and we respond with obedience to those loving commands. And God's people worship him exclusively. God alone is the source of fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. And finally, God's people Love him comprehensively. Verse 5. We are to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. Now, I don't think that this phrase is intended to suggest that God's people are to love God in these three categories out of the hundreds of possible categories in our lives. Rather, I think that the phrase is intended to give us the sense of the comprehensiveness of our love. These three words, heart, soul, and might, gathered together to explain the totality of the sphere of the love of God, which God's people are to have for Him. To love God in this way is to put Him first in all things. God is our priority. Nothing will crowd him out of our lives. We desire him and his glory beyond anything else. We think of heart today as the seat of our emotions, the organ in which our emotions reside. But ancient Israel the people to whom Moses was speaking would have understood Moses to mean when he used the word heart as the place of our will or our intellect. Ancient Israel would have understood that what Moses was saying, it's it's where we think, it's where we make decisions, it's where we make our choices. We love God there. With all your soul reflects the desire of Moses That the people of God love God from their inner person. It's authentic, not just external. Our love for God is not just a show that we put on for others. At our core, we are God lovers. And then finally, with your might... Literally here, uh, the phrase is, with your very muchness. So we will love God lavishly and energetically. God's people will place no limits, no boundaries on loving God. God's people will love him comprehensively. Love is what God wants most from his people. We often think that God wants a hundred different things from us. 
God wants things like our money, our time, our effort, our will, our submission, and the list goes on. But primarily, what God really wants from us is our love. Now, what kind of a being would command love? Well, it's the kind of being that the one true God is. He is love. He perpetually wants what is best for us. And if there was anything better for us than loving God, then he would command that for us. But because love for God is what is objectively best for us, this is what he commands for us. And when we love the Lord with all our heart and soul and might, then everything else is freely given as an expression of that love. Listen, if, if we give the Lord all the rest, if we give the Lord our money, our time, our obedience, without giving Him our love, it's all a waste. What's the point? If you know something about the Bible, you know that that is Phariseeism. The Pharisees followed all the rules, but were without love. And the Lord had nothing good to say about Pharisees. He has no desire that we become what they were. And when Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment? Recorded for us in Matthew chapter 22, the question and Jesus' answer. He did not recite the judicial laws. He did not mention the ceremonial laws. When Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment, he did not even present anything that we would put into the category of being moral. He didn't say, well, the greatest commandment is don't lie, or don't murder, or don't commit adultery. Jesus' answer to the question, which is the greatest commandment, was love God. A quotation from Deuteronomy 6. The law is summed up in a word love. All obedience begins with one word, love. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> How can the people of God distinguish themselves in a pagan world? Well, God's people live for him obediently. God loved, he revealed the way to human flourishing through his commands, we respond in obedience. God's people worship him exclusively. God alone is the source of our fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. And God's people love him comprehensively. Love for God will be the supreme motivation for our living. Now, if God's people distinguish themselves in these ways, if we actually live like this, worship like this, and love like this, people will ask, why? We see in verse uh, 20 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, that Moses predicted this response to this kind of living. Uh, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of why do we live this way? Why? Why don't we live like the rest of people? Why don't we buy like the rest 
of people? Why don't we play like everyone else plays? Why don't we lust like everyone else lusts? Why aren't our priorities the same as everyone else's? Why do we live for God obediently? Why do we worship him exclusively? Why do we love him comprehensively? Why? And Moses taught the nation of Israel to answer, because we are a people who have been rescued. God chose to bring us liberation from our bondage in Egypt. His choice was a display of sovereign grace and mercy. Despite our rebellion against him, despite our idolatries, in his faithfulness to his promise, he, this is verse 23 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, he brought us out from Egypt in order to bring us in to the promised land. We love him because he first loved us. As an overflow of our love for the God who rescued us, we live for him obediently, we worship him exclusively, and we love him comprehensively because we are a people whom God has rescued. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Just a few moments of silent consideration of these things. And while our heads are bowed, think about this. If you're a Christian here this morning, I I pray that your heart might be warmed toward your gracious, merciful, loving, rescuing God. He simply, sovereignly set his affection on you despite you having nothing to offer him. He offered his love to you. May your living be transformed by your loving. And may your life be a witness and a testimony to a world who has largely rejected God, a pagan world, a world scurrying after all sorts of things to fulfill them. May you live in such a way that the world asks, why? And if you're here this morning and thought that that at its core, Christianity was all about some self-important divine being requiring obedience from people in order that he might build up his self-esteem and that people are called to knuckle under to this heavenly tyrant. Oh, I hope today that you see the goodness and the love and the kindness of God. His love for you was from the beginning. He's given commands for your living for your own good. If he didn't love you so much, he wouldn't have troubled himself with that. Our hearts are prone to search for fulfillment in so many other things rather than a relationship with God. We strive after fulfillment everywhere but toward God. 
How's that working out for you? There is only one God, and it is in him alone where fulfillment and forgiveness is found. We, we love God because he first loved us. Paul in Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I wonder if there's anyone in the room today who would want to communicate this to God. God, I, I realize your love for me. I see your love for me in your commands and in the cross of Jesus. I've spent my life ignoring you at best, rebelling against you at worst. I have, I have so many idols. You have no idea. Will you forgive me? I believe that Jesus died in my place on the cross and that because of his substitutionary sacrifice, you have promised to restore what my rebellion has broken. Bring me out of my brokenness and sin. Bring me in to relationship with you and the eternal life you promised to all those who believe. Rescue me that I might live for you.